Violence escalates in Myanmar. Texas ends its mask mandate. Attacks against health providers on the rise and demands for Mayor de Blasio to end solitary confinement on Rikers Island. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the WBAI News for Tuesday, March 2nd, 2021. Police fired tear gas and rubber bullets at demonstrators in Yangon Tuesday as the military junta escalates the crackdown on protests against Myanmar's coup. Hundreds of protesters wearing hard hats and carrying shields could be seen chanting and hiding behind barricades before running away from police. Last week, a national strike shut down the country, which is also known as Burma. Supporters of the National League for Democracy, which had governed the country since 2016 and overwhelmingly won elections in November, have been joined by most of Myanmar's ethnic minority parties. And the Biden administration, signaling a tougher stance on Russia than under the Trump White House, announced Tuesday new sanctions targeting seven senior Kremlin officials in response to last year's poisoning of opposition leader Alexei Navalny. U.S. officials said the moves were being coordinated with the European Union. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki. The Biden-Harris administration is announcing key conclusions from an intelligence community assessment on the poisoning of Alexei Navalny, as well as measures to hold Russia accountable for this action. The intelligence community assesses with high confidence that officers of Russia's Federal Security Service used a nerve agent to poison Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny on August 20th, 2020. The use of any chemical weapon directly violates international legal obligations and norms of civilized conduct, and our actions today fall into a number of categories and reflect a whole-of-government response. We are also working with Congress to ensure we're faithfully implementing the Chemical and Biological Weapons Act. Uh, Today, the uh, United States is announcing sanctions on seven senior members of the Russian government, an expansion of sanctions under the Chemical and Biological Weapons Control and Warfare Elimination Act, new export restrictions on items that could be used for biological agent and chemical production, and visa restrictions. As a demonstration of our transatlantic unity and cooperation with partners over the ocean, many of the actions we are taking mirror the steps the EU took in October and match additional EU measures being taken today. We also reiterate our call for the Russian government to immediately and unconditionally release Mr. Navalny. And uh, officials also announced that the U.S. intelligence assessment had concluded with high confidence that Russian intelligence officers used a nerve agent known as Novichok to poison Russian opposition leader Navalny on August 20th, 2020, something the government, the Russian government denies. Today, at a hearing before the Senate Judiciary Committee, FBI Director Chris Wray bluntly labeled the January riot at the U.S. Capitol domestic terrorism. He warned of a rapidly growing threat of homegrown violent extremism that law enforcement is scrambling to confront through thousands of investigations. Ray also defended lawmakers, defended two lawmakers, his own agency's handling of an intelligence report warning of the prospect for violence on January 6th. And he firmly rejected false claims advanced by some Republicans that anti-Trump groups had organized a deadly riot that began when a violent mob stormed the building as Congress was gathering to certify results of the presidential election. In an exchange, Senator Dick Durbin asked Ray, who was it that really invaded the Capitol on January 6th? 
Certainly the capital attack involved violent extremists. As I said, we, the FBI, consider this a form of domestic terrorism. It included a variety of backgrounds. Certainly we're seeing quite a number of who we would call sort of militia violent extremists. So do you have any evidence that the capital attack was organized by, quote, fake Trump protesters? We have not seen evidence of that at this stage, certainly. Thank you. Senator. We don't tend to think, we at the FBI, don't tend to think of violent extremism in terms of right, left. That's not a spectrum that we look at. What I would say is that it is clear, as I think I said to Chairman Durbin, a large and growing number of the people that we have arrested so far in connection with the 6th are what we would call militia violent extremism. And then there have been some already that have emerged who I would have put in the racially motivated violent extremist bucket. You did not see Antifa or left-wing groups playing a significant role in the January 6th insurrection. We're equal opportunity in looking for violent extremism of any ideology. We have not to date seen any evidence of anarchist violent extremists or people subscribing to Antifa in connection with the 6th, that doesn't mean we're not looking and we'll continue to look. But it's, at the moment, we have not seen that. FBI Director Ray said the number of domestic terrorism investigations has increased from around 1,000 when he became FBI Director in 2017 to about 2,000 now. The number of white supremacist arrests has almost tripled. The sprawling Justice Department investigation into the riot has already produced more than 300 state and federal arrests, including uh, members of militia groups and far-right organizations. Tuesday's oversight hearing marked Ray's first public appearance before Congress since before November's presidential election. And Texas Governor Greg Abbott issued the most sweeping rollback of coronavirus restrictions of any U.S. state on Tuesday, saying that most businesses may open at full capacity next week and lifting the mask mandate. It is clear from the recoveries, from the vaccinations, from the reduced hospitalizations and from the safe practices that Texans are using, that state mandates are no longer needed. <laughs> Effective next Wednesday, all businesses of any type are allowed to open 100%. <laughs> that includes any type of entity in Texas. Also, I am ending the statewide mask mandate. Texas Governor Greg Abbott. Abbott's executive order lifts all mask requirements statewide and forbids any local jurisdiction from penalizing residents for not wearing a face covering. It removes all restrictions on businesses and counties with a high number of hospitalizations. The governor said he was able to lift the restrictions because Texas, the third most populous state, had administered nearly 5.7 million vaccine shots to its 29 million residents. Despite Abbott's actions, the coronavirus continues to ravage the world and the fear and misinformation. Uh, pardon me, and the fear and misinformation has had alarming side effects. One year after the first death from COVID, the fallout has been on healthcare workers. The UC Berkeley Human Rights Center and Insecurity Insight Group have mapped more than 1,100 attacks against healthcare workers and facilities, including 400 attacks that appear to be specifically COVID-19 related over 12 months worldwide. As the pandemic rages on in many parts of the world, these attacks continue. The author of the report is Stephanie Croft. She's director of the Human Rights Center at the University of California in Berkeley.
healthcare providers and fragile health systems were already under great strain and have been even more so with the pandemic. So attacks on healthcare have taken place before COVID. But under COVID, what we've seen is two general trends. One is around the fear of infection and more recently frustration about treatment, not getting treated or the stigma of being diagnosed. That's how the attacks on healthcare facilities and workers has really shifted. We saw 400, around 400 attacks that were COVID-related, but many more that just took place in the context of conflict. So folks don't want to wear masks. Is that is an extension of that? It's uh, all the things that you have to do because of COVID and the fear around it? In part, some of those, yes, and and some of those perhaps very human of wanting to see a loved one after the past or not being able to access family members during burials, so many reasons and perhaps also understandable reasons why people are very stressed and experiencing anger and despair at this time. I would say that everyone is really suffering. How's this risen to a problem where we need to talk about it? We saw a lot of variation between, for example, Mexico and India, where there's a lot of attacks, interpersonal attacks, to, for example, Libya and Yemen, where there is conflict related. One key issue is fear of infection and misinformation can really change our trust of the public health sector, and that has potentially long-term impacts both for the workers who are just trying to do their job in the pandemic, but also why they require additional protection and additional support, uh, both in and out of conflict. I was shocked, I guess, to see that uh, there were, in the Netherlands, tremendous violent attacks. Absolutely, and there needs to be some support given by government policies and communication to provide additional support and protection to health workers and facilities and also to encourage health workers to report attacks when they happen and to empower them to be able to continue to report when they are faced with violence, aggression, discrimination. This is something that Previous to the pandemic, we wouldn't have seen so many attacks necessarily around the US or or Europe. And for that reason, most of our monitoring wasn't equipped to really look at these areas. However, everything changed last year. And so what has happened is we've seen those attacks happen in all contexts and several of them also happening during protests as health workers went to work as well as while they were working, but on their way to and from work. The problem is not bordered and not in a particular region. Right, and the United States conspiracy theories that I've never seen before, targeting doctors, targeting the entire medical establishment, the whole idea that there's a virus, the whole idea that you have to wear masks or do anything. We weren't able to attribute specific attacks to misinformation but it is undoubtedly a strong force that has is stigmatizing our health workers and and our trust in the public health system to be able to respond to the pandemic yeah. it comes kind of a joint responsibility from journalists advocates policy makers and government to provide a clear and consistent message around covid and and to see also the the human impacts that misinformation and disinformation can have on workers like health workers nurses doctors cleaners 
orderlies, people that really should have no barrier to being able to do their work safely as they provide care to others. Does this rise to the hate crime level? Yes, and that's what we've noticed in the visual material that we were reviewing is that there were at times no other indicator about the intention of the attack or the context other than a person who was in scrubs or in their medical attire. By the uniform alone, they, they were being targeted. Stephanie Croft is author of the report, Violence Against Healthcare, Attacks During a Pandemic, published by the University of California, Berkeley Human Rights Center. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Lawmakers in the Democratic-controlled houses of the state legislature have reached an agreement to scale back Governor Andrew Cuomo's powers granted to him last year to oversee the response to the COVID-19 pandemic. That's according to top lawmakers. Meanwhile, in the city, Mayor de Blasio announced a milestone in his campaign to vaccinate the city. The exact number, 2,024,601 doses have been administered since we began. And at the very beginning, we had very little supply, but we knew the vaccine would be the difference maker. It was a shot of hope. And now it's 2 million shots of hope that have been given and so much more to come. Look, I said weeks ago, we could hit 5 million New Yorkers fully vaccinated by June. This is further proof we're on target. We can get it done so long as we get that supply. We need the manufacturers. We need the federal government. We need the state government to help us get it done. Get us the supply freed us up, free us to vaccinate, cut the red tape, give us local control. This is the way forward. And uh, meanwhile, uh, the mayor then listed the day's COVID-19 indicators. Number one, daily number of people admitted to New York City hospitals for suspected COVID-19. Today's report, 211 patients. I'm going to just stop there and note, despite all the qualifiers were Uh, talking about today and our focus constantly on the data and the science. Well, here's data. This number is actually getting close to that 200 threshold uh, that we say is the the key indicator we're looking for. Actually, this number is finally getting back down there. That's a good sign. But on the other fronts with hospital admissions, 65% uh, confirmed positive. That's still high. Hospitalization rate, 4.3%. Uh, per 100,000, that's still high. So we're watching all that carefully. New reported cases on a seven-day average. Today's report, 3,558 cases. And percent of people positive tested citywide for COVID-19. Today's report, seven-day rolling average, 6.09%. Also good to see that number, but a long way to go for sure. And that's the mayor speaking again. Uh, De Blasio continues to criticize Governor Cuomo amid the ongoing sexual uh, scandals over sexual harassment allegations, including a third voice claiming harassment by the governor, as well as the Cuomo administration's handling of nursing homes. Although the mayor declined to weigh in on impeachment last night, despite calls from some lawmakers, the mayor today was asked if he had any similar skeletons in his closet. Uh, I was raised by a single mom. My mom, Maria, uh, raised me. Unfortunately, uh, I've talked about my dad's life. Uh, He was not in the picture. He was not able to help. I was brought up with a reverence and a respect for women, very, very strong women in our family. Everyone knows the partnership I have with my wife, Sherlane. The notion of a man taking advantage of his power and his office to intimidate a woman in his employment or to try and 
somehow insinuate she should have sex with him, that's disgusting to me. It's unacceptable. It's not something, not only would I never, ever allow it, tolerate it, conceive of it being possible in my life or in my staff, I can't think of any decent human being who would do a thing like that. I'm very clear about my values, and I'm very clear about the respect that has to be shown to women in the workplace. And that's Mayor de Blasio. Today, at the start of Women's History Month, survivors of solitary confinement held a rally in person at City Hall and virtually, urging de Blasio and the City Council to finally and fully end solitary confinement in all its forms. Over eight months after the mayor invoked the tragic death of Laylene Polanco to promise to end solitary confinement in New York City, and 21 months after Laylene died, nothing has been done. That's according to the activists, and people are still being tortured, they say, in solitary in New York City jails. Solitary confinement, they said, is torture. My name is Melania Brown. I am an activist and sister of Laylene Polanco. My baby sister died um, on June 7, 2019. She died alone in solitary confinement. My sister was placed there simply because of her gender identity, not because she did anything wrong to anyone or anything of that sort. My sister should have never been in prison to begin with. She was raped by numerous cops. She was thrown into solitary confinement against medical objection, uh, objections. I watched them laugh as my sister was fighting for her life, probably begging for them to help her. I watched them laugh and then carry her out in a body bag. It's very traumatizing to me and my family that we still are going through this situation and that so many other loved ones right now are, are going through the situation, sitting sitting in solitary confinement. We, she has loved ones. She has me, for one, for, for starter, that I'm never going to back off. What they did to my sister, they will remember. Every time I come on this platform and I speak, they will remember my sister. They will remember what they did to her. Those correctional officers, if you're watching, you're going to remember her for the rest of your life. And solitary confinement. These are humans we're talking about. Everyone that's sitting on the desk right now, that's a senator, senator, legislator, mayor, they all have something that they're not proud of, something that they're going to take to their grave. I say this to say that we are humans. I would like to bring on the public advocate, Jemani Williams. We have heard people's names used, Lillian Polanco, Nicholas Feliciano, Khalif Browder, and so many others, when discussing this issue, we need to stop using people's name in vain if we're not going to do something to change it so that we don't add any more names to the list. Solitary confinement causes permanent damage to people psychologically, physically, uh, socially. Like, there's just not even argument against it. Uh, we understand that Black and Latinx people are disproportionately affected. Uh, the mayor, eight months ago, using the name of someone who was lost, said that this was going to change eight months later. It has not, uh, with no excuse. I want to be clear. This is not about not having accountability, but this is about having programs in place that stop the kind of violence that people are talking about. This is torture, period. And we just have to stop it. And that was the hearing that was held or the protest that was held virtually and in front of City Hall by folks calling for an end to solitary confinement, as has been po promised by the mayor, but a promise that has yet to be fulfilled. 
And yesterday, WBAI covered the story of a farm worker who was killed in the immigrant camp known as Amokali, Florida, by police officers who fired four shots, three shots, actually pierced his chest, and then uh, had a dog attack him. The town is a really not a, a city or town of any sort. It's a, a camp set up for farm workers who pick in that corner of Florida. It's in the southwestern corner of the state near the uh, the wealthiest city in Florida, which is called Naples, Naples, Florida. Today, WBAI spoke with Gerardo Reyes. He's an organizer with a group known as the Coalition for Immokalee Workers. He says workers in the camp pick 90% of all the fresh tomatoes grown in the United States. And although they are considered essential workers, they feel like they are not being treated as essential. And that has caused a growing movement against police brutality and for humane treatment for workers in the tomato fields of South Florida. We spoke to Gerardo Reyes earlier today. We have been asking for the release of the video uh, for, for transparency, transparency from the Collier County Sheriff's Office in regards to what happened. But we had to start a campaign to demand that because there was no willingness. It took five months and they released it on a long week. And all of this only exacerbates the lack of transparency that they have shown for the past almost half, half a year. The fact that they were found uh, not guilty, that they supposedly did things in the way that they were trained, shows a lot of a lot of things that were mishandled in the video you can see. Like, for example, when they arrived, they draw guns out right away. The officer that shot Nicolas four times, hitting him three times, didn't have a reason to assume that Nicolás represented a threat because he was behind a car, shirtless. I think he didn't have shoes. He was clearly disoriented. He was having an episode, a mental episode. The police is supposed to know how to respond to those things, but they fit. That's why we are asking for, in some of the demands, to implement a crisis response or teams Caring police and mental health professionals to respond to calls where mental health is a potential issue. The police canine was released on Nicolas right after he was shot. There were 15 seconds that went by before the officer that released the dog attempted to try to take the dog off Nicolas's shoulder. And there was almost an entire minute that the dog continued to move on a dying Nicolas, who was just like asking for help for, uh, from his mother. Uh, those were some of his last words, I'm dying. And then he called for his mother as the dog was attacking him. None of these needed to happen. They had all the equipment, all the training, they have tasers to shoot him, to kill him. And uh, that's what we as a community feel that it is something that needs to change. The officers, one of them spoke Spanish, but he never directed any word to Nicolás. All the commands happen in English. The community of Imogali, we want to have a voice in all of this. We are also asking for transparency and genuine community participation 
with an immokalist specific citizens review panel created with meaningful powers to be able to help direct the efforts of reforming the way in which the police interacts with our community. Right. And uh, since we don't have a lot of time, but I like to maybe we're going to keep doing this story in, in times coming. Uh, let me jump to the PPE, which is, you know, maybe just tangentially connected. But the way that the state there, the state government See, it relates to the people of Omokla. You do such an important job. Talk about essential workers. You guys are like the, are the workers down there being treated as if they're truly essential. No, the reality is that we have been given a task. And these tasks as essential workers, we have been given just the title, but not the protections that are needed to be able to do our job in a safe manner. We have to work with the alliances we have and with the partnerships we have created, for example, with the growers. Outside of these farms, there's nothing. There's even growers that don't believe that even promote this idea of not wearing masks and calling all of these a Chinese hoax uh, still today. Gerardo Reyes is an organizer with the Coalition for Amokali Workers, and WBAI will be following this story as it develops. And finally, six Dr. Seuss books, including And to Think I Saw It on Mulberry Street and If I Ran the Zoo, will stop being published because of racist and insensitive imagery. That's according to the business that protects the author's legacy. They said these books portray people in ways that are hurtful and wrong. Ceasing sales of these books is only one part of our commitment and our broader plan to ensure Dr. Seuss Enterprises catalog represents and supports all communities of Faith. The other books affected are McElegate's Pool, On Beyond Zebra, Scrambled Egg Super, and The Cat's Quizzer. The decision to cease publication and sales of the books was made last year after months of discussion by the company. Uh, the books include uh, images of Asian persons uh, portrayed wearing conical hats, holding chopsticks, eating from a bowl. If I Ran the Zoo includes a drawing of two barefooted African men wearing what appear to be grass skirts, their high hair tied behind their heads. Books by Dr. Seuss, born Theodore Seuss Geisel in Springfield, Massachusetts, have been translated into dozens of languages as well as in Braille and are sold in more than 100 companies. He remains popular earning $33 million before taxes in 2020, up from $9 million five years ago. Forbes listed him as number two on the highest paid dead celebrities list of 2020 behind the late pop star Michael Jackson. And that's some of the news for Tuesday, March 2nd, 2021. The news producer, Linda Perry, our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.